welcome to uh, Shout at Tequila Podcast. Thanks for joining everyone out there who uh, looks us up. We're on Instagram, Facebook, anywhere you go to listen to podcasts. Tonight I have uh, uh, Chris Moriarty. Uh, Chris is uh, the American Oak. Isn't that what they used to call you? No, it's something my friend called me in high school. It's fucking awesome, though, that you remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Something like the American Oak. But uh, Chris is somebody I've trained jiu-jitsu with for uh, – uh, we hadn't trained in a while, actually, but we trained together for years, and uh, he spent the last eight, nine years, I think, becoming a doctor, and he's ten on years. Huh? Ten years. Jesus Christ, ten years. It's amazing how time flies, but he spent the last ten years becoming a doctor. Uh, he was good enough to get on with us tonight. We're going to talk about anything we want to talk about, and hope you enjoy it. Um, I try to start it off. Um, or I'm trying to start a new kind of wave stack house. So, but tonight I made an old fashioned. Okay. <laughs> With the whole, oh yeah, I've got even a special little ice cube. Look at you that. Even big, have the fancy ice cube maker. Look there. at the big son of a bitch. I have to say, you know what's something that bothers me though, Chris and stack house, you know, what's something that bothers me is before we, we started talking or we got on, um, I was having a, um, how can I say that? I probably shouldn't say where she is. Anyway, I was having a Zoom video call just like this with a uh, friend of mine in a far off place, right? And we had discussed by text, not by phone, but by text. We just typed it on, on our iPhones that, hey, we hadn't talked to each other in a while. Let's have a drink by Zoom this time right? Swear to God today doing work like I normally do. I'm doing my work. Things settle down. I'm flipping through Facebook, wasting a little bit of time. And guess what I start seeing ads for? Old fashions, not only old fashions, but like dry ice old fashions, like the ones they're making now that look like smoke when they pour them out. Right. Big brother is listening. It's the craziest. Yeah, I know. Trust me, I know. Like, uh, it's yeah. That's actually it's funny you bring that up because I actually had that experience for the first time like last week. I was like, I don't even remember ever searching for this. Right. Like, I just like was thinking about this. It's weird. Like, you can start <laughs> typing something into a search bar and it finishes it for you, and you're like three words short of being finished. They're monitoring how long you hover over something on Facebook and anywhere else, really, on the internet. The, Facebook and Google have completely sold you out. Yeah, I, I well, I would believe because it was unnerving that I hadn't even talked to her about it. It's not like I understand enough to to go to my iPhone and shut off the microphone for security. You know, if you get privacy. You can go to privacy, go to your microphone and shut everything off. So it's not, supposedly it's not listening to you, but you got to sh shut Siri off too, because she's listening always. And she's feeding that data to everyone else. But it was eerie as fuck today when it was like it was timed. That's what was even more work. It wasn't like it just started shutting. It was like it was timed. It was like it knew that I was about to have to do what I did and I was going to have a old fashioned with this, this friend of mine. <laughs> so it started feeding me advertisement. 
this is where you're you're connecting like what probably happened to like how it seemed in your mind like there's like a blur like there's like a line there there's like, some border somewhere that i'm missing <laughs> Man, i'm still at the point where like I, I i can see how this can be a problem but right now i'm enjoying the convenience i'm not gonna lie i was running yesterday and i was running like it was beautiful here and i turn around on the end of the street and i come back and there's a fucking like Oh, it was like a Roomba for the lawn. It was like a little, it was too small to be a lawnmower, but it couldn't have been anything else. But you could see it was like on GPS, like it was like checking and then turning and going straight back down a line. Like I was watching it, like looking backwards while I was running for like 30 seconds. I was like, what the fuck? I was like yeah. I does that really exist? Have you guys heard of this? Does something like this exist? No, yeah, that's I've, I've seen them. They're, they're so it's, it's yeah. a lawnmower? Yeah, it's basically just the platform of a lawnmower. Yeah, it's like this big. It was like this big. Yeah, yeah. You know? I've okay, seen so the ones I, that are like industrial. Like, what the fuck? I it's saw a bigger that one. It occurred to me before because it seems like you could just set the parameters, you know, like the dimensions of your yard and it would be just like cleaning your house. It's just amazing. I never thought of that before. Yeah. I was on the interstate today and there's this guy standing right next, it's under like a bridge, right? One of the overpasses. And there's a guy standing next to the interstate and he's got one that's like commercial grade, but it sits really low and flat. There's nobody on this thing and it's cutting the grass and it's running back and forth, making the most perfect lines you've ever seen in your life. And he's just standing there. And I'm thinking to myself, as I'm getting closer, I'm like, there's nobody on this lawnmower. And then I see the guy and I'm like, okay, well, he's probably got a joystick in it or joystick boy. I'm aging myself now like a joystick or some kind of controller in his hand, right? No, he's just standing there. He doesn't have anything. I don't know who was controlling the damn thing. It, I guess it was controlling itself, but it was going up these, you know, high yeah, incline yeah, yeah. banks and place. It was just been too dangerous for a guy to be, I guess, riding something, but man, we're making things way too convenient guys. That's all I'm saying. Way too convenient. Yeah. Hmm. Like I said, right, I mean, it's going to sneak up. Like the thing about the, the, the techno technology pushing people out of jobs, it's definitely going to happen. But I think that it's it, like all these kinds of things have been happening for like 20, 30 years. And it's not like there's ever just this one point where there's just, boom, this massive leap forward that instantaneously puts like 100,000 people out of a job. You know, it, 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 these things take time and it's kind of like a gradual shift so i'm you know unless you know there's argument to be made that the rate of technological innovation is actually accelerating so it's not like a constant slope um so it's, that's, not, it's not like a computer that's gonna what double was yeah it? but I, yeah i look i don't know i'm just thinking like you know i think that there's gonna be time there's always there's gonna be time for people to adapt it Hopefully one thing that comes out of this pandemic is that all the people that have been complaining about wanting to work have actually tried to do something while they were at home, like write down some ideas. I mean, learn, a, like try to learn a language, take some language lessons online, singing lessons, uh, some class. I mean, anything. Everybody's definitely had time. Jesus Christ. So hopefully, you know, some people have discovered some talents that they didn't know they had or worked on some passions that they've always put off and, you know, 
they'll already they'll always be successes. There'll be successes that come out of this, and then there'll be those that didn't do anything with their time. Yeah. Um, it'll be real. It'll be interesting anyway. Uh, Chris, for those those who don't know you, talk to you. Give me the la- Give me the rundown. Give me your jujitsu career, and then what have you been doing for ten years? All right, I'm gonna try to keep this really short. So, in, I used to work at this um, health health club. It's like really. Um, really bougie health club called Atlanta Athletic Club. Um, I think that they play some PGA Tour events there or they release one tour event. They do. And really wealthy people there. It was the best job you can ever have in high school, right? I got paid to be a member. I made smoothies. It was ridiculous. And one day I was sitting there and I, I was at my smoothie bar and I saw a guy walk by with a gi and it was Ed Kennedy. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, jiu-jitsu. Of course it was Ed Kennedy. Yeah. Mr. So, fucking America. <laughs> yeah, I know, right, Captain America. So – um, and you know, he made that shit look good. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, he did. It looks like a fucking, he should be a model with his gi on, especially at that time, you know? Yeah. And so anyway, I was like, so he would come in on Sundays at like 6 PM and teach like a little class, but he was very infrequent. He would just kind of cancel the last minute. It happened a lot. So I was like, man, I want to go to the source. So anyway, I started training with Jacques Day. I trained with him for about eight months, went away to college for a year. I ended up training in Dayton. That's where I went to college for a year. It's a different story. And then um, I trained up here. I learned a lot from an instructor up here named George Gurgel and another guy, his his um, assistant, uh, John Stutzman, who ironically I'm training with now. And they both taught me a lot. I came back down to Atlanta. Um, I got my purple belt in about a year. It was a year and two months. Uh, so it was real quick. I had won some, um, this big tournament up, up here in Ohio, uh, the Arnold Classic at the time it was a big tournament, went back down to Atlanta and I, I kept competing. Um, I was competing a lot. I was competing like, you know, 12 to 15 times a year from yeah. like 2004 to 2000. I remember, I remember because I didn't, I didn't know who the hell you were. No one knew who the hell you were. And it was like, you disappeared. You disappeared for, I guess you were saying like a year, yeah. two years. And then you came it was like you disappeared and you were a blue belt and you came back in a year and you were a purple belt. Is that right? Yeah. And I remember. And I, I remember thinking, how the fuck did he get a, how did he get the purple belt in a year? He didn't get it from Jacques Ray and all. And yeah. then I saw you wiping the mat with guy after guy after guy. And I'm like, uh, oh, he's been somewhere. He's been doing something. So this this, it was a, it was a good, I mean, that's a whole long story, but it was a good, basically, where uh, being up here with those instructors was what I needed at that time. It was very, very different approach than Jacare. It was very much like um, a kind of a thoughtful approach. Like, no, why are you pushing him here? You're pushing him here because you want him to push back. You know, it was very like walking you through the logic behind every single thing that you did. Um, and so like, it gave me a handful of moves that I knew like inside and out and I understood them and it gave me a base to be able to retain my guard and, and, and pass people's guards. And then when you can do those two things, you're able to build up all the other positions, um, the offensive positions. And it took me a long time after that to be able to de- build up the defensive positions, which I think is one problem with somebody being somebody that, that is talented and, and, and uh, advances quickly. You aren't, you don't spend enough time in, in, in t- tough positions. But anyway, so I competed a lot. I had a, 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 some international successes. I won the world championship at Brown Belt in 2007. And then I won it in 2008. But I, in the final, I split it with our teammate from Brazil, Batista. I won the 
uh, Pan Am, my weight class in 2008. And then I got second in the absolute in 2008. I won the Abu Dhabi trials in 2006. I broke my ankle before the actual Abu Dhabi event in 2007. And so I, I, I went one and one in Abu Dhabi. Um, who was that guy? Who was the guy who caught your ankle? Well, nobody caught my ankle. Well, Homolo Bahao went after my ankle and I tapped, but uh-huh. I got hurt in a match with Lovato and it was just a freak yeah. accident. My foot got caught in the mat and over time, and he tried to do a foot sweep. My foot got caught in the mat, and I, I fell in an awkward angle and um, broke my um, my distal fibula in my ankle. Yeah. And so I wasn't really – I only was walking for um, – I forgot that. I forgot it was Lovato that was at that sweep. I remembered it was a sweep, but I couldn't remember who it was. So I think I was walking for about – I was full weight-bearing for about – four to six weeks prior to Abu Dhabi. So I really, I didn't get to train any takedowns. Um, I was really only really training for about maybe three weeks, but actually it wasn't, I was in good shape. I just, my confidence was low and I didn't feel stable on my ankles. Not that I necessarily would have beaten Homolo, but I think I could have felt a lot better. And actually, interestingly, in the first match, I destroyed my other ankle. And if with that match actually online, and if um, you watch it, I may one day take the video and then put it side by side with some dynamic ultrasound images I've done on my ankle because I completely ruptured two ligaments in my ankle that are just gone on my other ankle. So I was, you know. Wait a minute, not the one that you technically hurt or the other? Yeah, so I taped both of my ankles going into that because I didn't you know, the video wasn't out necessarily. So I didn't know, I didn't want people to know which one it was. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I taped both of my ankles. And in the first match, the guy kept going after heel hook, heel hook, heel hook. I pulled my leg out and I went to spin around to face him. And on my other ankle, I just went like that, just like boom. And um, I heard this pop. And I walked over to Jacare and I was just like, after the match, I looked at him and I said, my ankle's fucked. And it was my other ankle. So I ran I never cooled. I didn't cool down after that match. I stayed on my feet and I ran and jogged until my next match because my ankle was starting to swell. And I even under the tape, so I just taped more and I didn't want to start becoming immobile. And so I just kept going, but I I really couldn't walk. And so, you know, as part of my sports medicine fellowship training, I've been spending, you know, I play, I'm on the ultrasound machine constantly doing musculoskeletal ultrasound every day. And I scan my ankle and I have some dynamic images and I have no anterior talofibular ligament and no calcaneal uh, fibular ligament. They're both gone. They're both. Ex- and that was, I'm, I'm that, they're, well, they're just completely. Me, I'm a fucking idiot when it comes to orthopedics. You have three main ligaments on the lateral part of your ankle, right? And I've torn two of them. And so, you know, ever since that time, you know, you know, you, you injure your ankle and then, you know, a month later you feel okay. But then periodically what would happen is I'd be running, my ankle would just go, my ankle would just be unstable. And then it would swell up and it'd go away and it'd be fine. And it just kept happening over and over and over again. And so when I went to scan my own ankle, I was like, wow, I, yeah, my ankle's unstable. And that's when it happened. I just didn't realize it. And so, yeah, I was went in with one ankle injury on my right ankle and came out with the worst injury on my left one. Jesus. Um, so anyway, that happened. And then, um, you know, in that time that I was injured before when I could train, um, I was getting ready to graduate college. And I realized in that moment that I, I really hadn't do, done anything to prepare myself to go to medical school. I'd 
really kind of push that off to the side and just done jujitsu. So my grades sucked. Wait a minute. Did you always, did you always know? I always wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a little kid. My My entire life. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I think that jujitsu in a way did two things. One of them positive. Well, there's a lot of positives, a lot of negatives, but the main idea. So one of the positives, the main positive was that it made me believe that I could be good at something and that people would, um, that I would, I would see that I had value and people would appreciate me for something because I, I never really felt that I wasn't very good at sports. I well, was always, I was, why did you feel like you didn't have any value? That doesn't make any sense. Well, no, so it's, 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 it's illogical now, but that's just how I was. So basically um, it's, this is a whole long story, but um, I'm not going to try to get into the whole psychology because I was in therapy for years and you met Sherry, my counselor who was at my wedding. I did I don't remember her, but she was at my wedding and she was a big part in me getting healthy that way and stuff. Um, but you know, my father died when I was really young and I was in, my mom was in a really bad relationship and, um, you know, I acted out a lot. I got kicked out of school and I was in seventh grade. And then, uh, when I got into high school, I, you know, I had gone through this whole period where I had basically not studied or practiced being a student. So I basically got through high school just on intelligence. I didn't know how to study. Like I, I never made flashcards. I never did homework. I didn't. And so, you know, you can get away with that in high school if you're smart and do okay, but you get into college and you can still get by, but you're not going to do well. Right. And then basically I, I so jujitsu came into my life and it allowed me to, it, it kind of took, part of my psychology and made it useful. So like my obsessiveness and my, um, my obsessiveness with understanding something and just being like, you know, fixated and stuck on something. And so jujitsu kind of, you know, before I'd be stuck on things that didn't have any value to anybody else. I'd be stuck on random things like memorizing some, like when I was in uh, sixth grade, I memorized like the prices and the specs for all these different cars it was so weird like things like that and in with jujitsu was like i could learn all these things and then i could apply them because i understood them better than the person across from me right and i could do them faster yeah. do you think that it do you think that uh our sport and i've, I've said this countless times before but there's something that i've noticed doesn't our sport collect minds that are somewhat like yours, almost, uh, almost oppulsive. You're, you're focused in on one, two, three different things and math. Think about how many like masters in math we have or is what physics. I can't, I can't comment on the math thing. Cause that was never like a strong thing for me. The, actually interesting visual spatial things aren't easy for me either. Like, um, so med musculoskeletal medicine, sports medicine has been interesting because I kind of have to reverse engineer all that stuff. I have to read this text uh, before I can see something in three dimensions. Um, and so in jujitsu, really like I don't, all I'm, it's like all I'm thinking about is like what, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking like I'm looking at something and I'm going, so like I'll have a problem in jujitsu and I'll be like, God damn it. Why is it every time I do this, this happens. And right. then, then the next time in that role, I'm like noticing, I'm like, okay, why is this happening? And then the next time in the role, I'm like, all right, okay. Every time this happens, his foot is there. Okay. All right. 
So what can I do with that flow? And it's like the thing that I think that jujitsu allowed me to do was it allowed me to, it rewarded me for being present during an activity. So like in a lot of other sports, you are. It's a great statement. In a lot of other sports, you're kind of rewarded for just doing, right? So in football, you're running a play. If you're a, if you're a lineman, you're running a play and you're, you kind of already know what you're going to do and you're just going to do it. You're going to hit, right? Now, of course, when you get really high up in, in the NFL, you know, these guys are thinking a lot. But at the lower levels of sport, a lot of things you're doing are just kind of reactive and they require like a lot of athleticism. So like the value of athleticism in basketball, like being able to dribble a ball being able to have good hand-eye coordination is the value that's much higher than the, at least at the low level, than the value to be able to like outsmart someone. Because if you, can't dribble, if you can't dribble well, then it doesn't matter how well you think, right? But in jiu-jitsu, it's kind of like if, if you can think well, you can, and you understand what the rules are, you can kind of figure out where your body needs to be after you realize it. You don't have to like, so for me, I never really, I've never drilled a lot. That's just, even when I was, you know, winning world championships in Brown Belt, not Black Belt, but I never really drilled. Now in judo, you have to drill because again, that's, that's a sport yeah. where the, the athletic component has to come first. Your ability to get to where you need to get to, it doesn't matter how much you know, if you can't get to where you need to get to fast and accurately, you can't do anything. So whereas in jujitsu, everything's a little bit slowed down. So you can think and then kind of position yourself. Sure. You know, so I feel like jujitsu allowed me to, I tell people I'm not athletic and everybody's like, oh, you're not athletic. But it's like, ask my brother, anybody that actually grew up with me, what I was like playing basketball or soccer or <laughs> tennis or anything that doesn't, that involves running and doing something else. Right? right. So jujitsu gave me that. Now, the one thing that happened was having not had that positive feedback all through high school. Right. Cause my mom was, you know, in this bad relationship and, um, and so I didn't get a lot of praise and I was getting in trouble all the time. So, you know what I'm saying? I'm not getting that good feedback. Um, when I started to get it in jujitsu, you, you become addicted to it. It feels great. You're, you're yeah. doing something well, you like so the feedback. So in your life, it, so in your life, it's the positive feedback that propelled you forward. Not well, yeah. So like, and you weren't and, trying to fight against somebody else. In other words, no. It was. It was. It and winning made me feel good. Just be, being able to have people want to learn from me, to have people like know that who what my name was, and be like, wow, I've seen you compete. You're really good. It was just like, wow, this is awesome. And so I became. You know, it was a healthy relationship I had for a while, but then when I broke my leg, it gave me it made me sit back and go like, "Wow, like everything that you've really wanted to do, that, that your whole goal, like your original goal, you aren't getting any closer to." Right. You know, and I started to realize that toward around that time, I started to realize that I was having success to the point where now people were expecting me to do things. Right. So Jacare didn't give me my black belt in 2007, even though I won the world championship five matches, all five submissions at Brown belt world championship. I'd submitted every single person I fought and I get my black belt for another like year and a half because he wanted, I don't know. He said I wasn't as good as I was before I got injured. I disagree. But, 
Um, he won. What I think happened is he wanted me to win my weight in the absolute. I knew that. And so right. next year, it was on me to win my weight in the absolute. And well, I, mean, I don't think Jacare would. I don't think Jacare would say that he didn't cook people a little longer. Of course, of course he did. I don't like. Look, I wasn't. How it goes. I'm glad. I'm glad. Actually, you know what I mean. I think that you know that's a whole other story about you know what you know getting people belts and men because black belts is a whole different ball game. But anyway, um. I knew that in my head. We never discussed it. He and I never discussed it, but I knew it. And so that pressure on me, it wasn't internal anymore. It wasn't, I, it wasn't something that I wanted, you know, anymore. I felt that maybe I wanted it this much, but I knew they wanted it for me this much. And that pressure wasn't enjoyable. And then by that time in 2008, I had graduated college and then um, I had done really well in my last term of college. I'd gotten straight A's. And I come back from Brazil and I was ready to start medicine. And yeah, so was, was, that was, trip, was that the trip when you went through, um, you were with, uh, with Chase Chase. Yeah. So you went through like Nicaragua, you went through, we didn't go through Nicaragua. We were in Costa Rica with Miguel for like a week. And then we went to Venezuela and traveled to Venezuela. And to Brazil. That was a bad deal. You shouldn't not went into Venezuela. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the time, <laughs> it wasn't quite a disaster like it is now, but we did not tell people we were American. We told them we were Australian. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so the, what I was getting to is that um, so what jujitsu did was when I broke my leg in the beginning of 2007, I had one more semester of college, and I just had realized at that point I'm sitting there going, man, what am I gonna do now? Like I knew in my heart I loved jujitsu, but I never wanted to like. I didn't want my whole life to be jujitsu. I wanted my life to be medicine. And so I thought, I sat there and thought about it. And it was interesting in the, in having to figure out a way to make up all of this work that I had missed in college, right? Cause I didn't want to like push off my graduation cause I was going to finish. So in figuring out a way to talk to my professors about a way I could make up the work, I came up with this outline system to, then I sent it to him to be like, Hey, this time I'm going to make it up. They're like, it's great. And so I just followed this system. And then all my first tests, when I came back, I got A's. And I was like, this is easy. I was like, all I had to do was just like, like plan it out and like space it out. And so then I got really interested in learning how to study. And I bought this book. Like, I remember that we had drinks. Some book, it was some book. It was, um, it was written by a guy who was a straight A student at like Dartmouth and he interviewed like a hundred straight A students from Ivy league schools. And he kind of condensed all their ideas into this book. And What's the name of the book? Ah, shit. I, I want to write it down. What the fuck? Um, the name. Because, uh, Dartmouth, but you think he's from Dartmouth, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll get, I'll get the name to you soon. But anyway, and it's not what you think. It's like, He's like, you know, a lot of people put out these books about getting straight A's. They're full of shit. This is how we really do it. And he's like, look, he's like, how do you not procrastinate? You can't. He's like, how do you, you know, you don't stay up too late and show up hungover for a class. You don't, you're going to do that. And it's right. just very logical. And so like, he has this system of like, it was, it was very much how I did jujitsu. It's being present. So when you're in a lecture, you're not sitting back and just watching. You're, you're listening and, and you're, you're trying to figure out, as they're talking, you're trying to turn those ideas into questions and answers. 
So, okay, he starts talking about this thing. And eventually, he's going to finish that thing and move on to something else. So you have to identify what the question can be about that first topic he brings up and what the, what the evidence that he's presenting to you is and what the answer is. And you do that for – so by the end of a lecture, I'd have like seven or eight questions sometimes. And if I didn't understand the answer at the end of class, I'd go up and be like, hey, you were talking about this and this and this. Well, you know. And so I – I did all of my lectures like that. And so once I would compile all of my lectures together, I would make sure that I went back through them and I didn't miss anything and I had everything lined up. Once I did all that, I put everything together and a couple of days before the test, I would just go through them all until I could go through every lecture without missing a single question. And then I would take the test and it was like a joke. Like I knew everything. Yeah. And, and it was like, and then I started to get that same feedback that I got from jujitsu. Uh -huh. You were getting it's that positive funny. reinforcement from being smart. Yeah, be, well, and also because I'm now, part of, now I was part of that group that sat in the front that expected to do well. And the teacher would, you know, kind of give you that look like you guys are my best students, you know. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a cool feeling. And so, man, I was like, so not only was I getting that positive feedback that jiu-jitsu would give me, but I was also moving towards my goals. So that took jiu-jitsu, competitive jiu-jitsu, and just – Yeah. You know, now because for me, the positive, the positive feedback you're getting from competing and winning, you were getting the same thing from right. But, but I was all, but I was doing it in a way that was accelerating me towards my goals, right? As opposed to jujitsu, like my way of kind of like avoiding it. I realized, you know, you felt like you were avoiding it towards the end. I started to realize that a lot of times what I would do is like it was much easier for me when I was stressed out and I wasn't doing well in the class and I didn't know what to do to just, I have to go train. I've got to go train. There's this tournament. This is, right. you know, like in the grand scheme of, I'm glad that now, like I don't regret anything that happened because I learned a lot, but I realized some, like a lot of the time I was, it was, um, I made it way more important than it really was. You know, I mean, like, how important is that in the grand scheme of things, you know, I mean, uh, to what I wanted to do. But so, yeah, towards the end, I did. I think there was a period of time where I needed it. I needed sure. that to be able to value myself and to realize, to learn that I hadn't been valuing myself. And then when I learned that and, and I saw that I could do that the way that I had approached it so I could do with anything else that I wanted, then that was just, that was more empowering than what I was just getting from jujitsu. You know what I mean? No, no, I absolutely ag agree with you because it's, it's not just you. I mean, we've had these conversations before at my house and other places, but, um, you know, with, even with Ryan, with, with Ryan Ellison also, it's a close friend of mine. Um, whenever we talk about life, I find even myself, reflecting what's happening in normal life to something I learned in jujitsu. And I'll say, you know, X, Y, Z happened. And you know what? It's exactly like when we train this move for jujitsu, right? And it's because it's methodical. It's methodical how we train because it's a problem, a solution. And then the solution creates another problem. And then that problem creates another solution, which leads to another problem. And it's just step by step by step by step by and step. You, by step. Like sometimes like, um, I always say when people ask me like what martial arts should they get into or something? I say, you have to train something. It doesn't matter what it is. You have to train something that's cyclical. 
something that you have to train something that allows near full speed, full energy sparring, because that's the only way you're going to consistently right. encounter new problems and have to come up with solutions. And so yes. whether it's kickboxing, wrestling, wrestling is kind of tough because it's not, I mean, I, it's, not, on it's not really traditionally a martial art because there's really no end game. Right. You know what I mean? But I would classify it for the purposes of this, the, the life lessons you learn, I would count it. But, you know, kickboxing, boxing, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, judo, um, where, you know, there's not one move end, right? It's one move end, and then the guy figures it out, and then it's one move, oh, shit, it's not working. And then, and then you'll start to see that you're, you know, at the beginning when I was training, every time that I trained, I just gave it, I just did give it my all because I only had so many things I could do, and I had to do my best every time. And then um, – you know, I started to realize, okay, I want to branch out. I want to start learning new things. Um, and so I want to kind of calm my game down, try some new things, be willing to not always win. And then, but it's funny, sometimes it, it came full circle a few years ago where I realized that I, in my effort to learn a lot of more defensive positions, I had lost some of my offensive, some of my aggressiveness. Right. And so when I went to go and compete, it was a lot more effort to, right. to want to just go. Pop, pop, pop. Yeah. And so to keep I, that know, engine running, right. To just grind that want to out of that net, uh, out of that person below you. Yeah. It's um, and so, you know, at every stage I'm always, I'm kind of always checking myself to be like, what's your motivation right now for why you're not going hard or why are you going light or, you know, but it's, then that's a balance too, because you don't want to be so in your head that you go, you go with jujitsu with anxiety. Yeah. You know, so the, everything about it, if you allow it, if you, if you're present when you train, which is the most important thing in jujitsu, it's more important than any technique or anything else is just, to, just making sure that you're present, which is, can be very difficult for some people. If, as long as you're present in jujitsu, jujitsu can teach you everything. So I mean, much. I think if you I think if you pull yourself back because I was never the competitor that you were or that you know countless other other people were but what jujitsu taught me which can relate to plenty of the listeners and plenty of the people just normal people out there is you're you exactly on the point that I try to make constantly with you know, you, you take somebody, no matter whatever you think about, you know, like Jocko's podcast or, or any of the others, jujitsu is one of the better things that you can do for yourself mentally and physically. And, and I, I know it's true, even for me, for normal people, because my problem um, from a long time ago, and it is still kind of a problem. It's, it's almost my mantra that I work from every day is not, I, I, I tend to look too far out in the future. I tend to look too far, too many steps out. And the problem with looking too far, too many steps out, you know, in, in, in my business with in financial, it's kind of the game, right? You're trying to be, you're trying to being prophetic. You're trying to, prophesy what's going to happen a long way out and you really don't know all you can do is take your best guess and kind of mitigate circumstances so you can end up at the best place possible what jujitsu brought 
to my day and to my life through several terrible things that always happen in people's lives, it kept me present because there is nothing like going to, I mean, for me personally, going to a 730 class in Dunwoody at Jacques, well, with Jacques Ray and now Leo's class, you have to be present there because if you're not present in every single role, somebody's going to try to kill you, right? I mean, really, they're not going to kill you. You're going to tap, you're going to tap out or, you know, half partially get choked out or whatever that may be. But what I find interesting about the sport is my mind would wander all day long and I would have all these worries left and right and, and 10 years down the road and five years down the road and even, you know, shit, uh, stuff that I shouldn't be thinking about, which is in the past. But when I was there for the two hours, it forced me to be right there. Yeah. Could not be left, right, forward, backwards. Nope. Right there. So you're defining like, um, I couldn't agree more, but it's interesting. I'm almost like you're almost defining presence in a, in a, in a different way, meaning like survival. Like you have to be, you have to be there to survive. And, and that allows you that you, you don't have enough space in your brain to think about everything else. And that's why a lot of people, you know, like why, why people go to jujitsu while it's like, why it's like a, a load off and it's like it it allows them to 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 de-stress now so i never really thought about i mean i guess i have thought about it like that i haven't heard anybody articulate it that way my version of present is a little bit different than that for the purposes of just getting better jujitsu so what i'm talking about is like if you roll you've rolled with someone like um for instance like pat harvey to me i love Pat harvey but he would be like this sometimes like you roll them and he's going yeah. He's, he's just like, he's got like two things that he's going to do and he just has to do them. And he's like, that's all I can see. And you're sometimes you're like, Pat, Hey. And he's like, oh. and he's, he's, he's not Absolutely. present in that. He's, he's seeing what's happening and he's reacting to it. He's trying to do something regardless of what's in front of him. Regardless of what happens, right. And He's so, just going to bulldoze through that piece. And so the presence of, of mind that you're talking about is more like um, being present on the mat. But some people, what they do is they, they take their, maybe their work hat off and they come into jiu-jitsu and they put this work, this jiu-jitsu helmet on that's programmed with like these couple things and those are the things you do. And it's like, so a lot of times I have to tell people, I was just like, I was like, hey, I was like, hey, look, like, look at what's there. I was like, you keep doing this, but look, look, just step back and look at that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, you're, that's why, you know, it's, it may, I can always tell, not always, but you ha some people will show me things and they'll show me a move. And then two or three weeks later, they'll show me another move. And in my head, I'm like, how can you not see that that's the exact same move, but with a different grip? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's like because they're not. It's almost they're too focused, right? Yeah, they're 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 yes. they're they're just thinking about this move. They're not like seeing like what's happening while they're rolling. And so, yeah, it's it's really interesting because both of those things are equally important. Um, 
you want to, it's just, it's interesting how, how they work together because you can have a, a group, a large group of people that totally benefit from coming into jujitsu and doing that meditation that is, you know, forcing them to be on the mat. But then at the same time, they struggle with improving and in, in, in developing their game because they're not able, they don't, I don't know if some people don't trust themselves. They only want to do what somebody else has shown them or they Aren't present, aren't present enough to just see. They don't have enough confidence. They don't have enough confidence to make whatever move is shown to them work for them. And I, I dealt with that for years. I mean, years where, and especially, uh, um, well, what's it a good example? Um, Cabrinha. Cabrinha is a good example for me. Cabrinha was very militaristic about yeah. how he taught. And yeah. a tough dude. Uh, don't I mean fucking phenomenal? I mean he's phenomenal. Uh, don't take anything away from him. But when he was in Atlanta for what was that three years, two or three years, my game was probably the same. Maybe maybe it raised a little because of the aggressiveness of how we trained and our physical capability when he was there. Because it was like it was like having Sergeant Powell. I mean not Sergeant Powell, yeah. but whoever was the you know, the military leaver and, and uh, uh, what am I thinking about? A full metal jacket, right? Um, it was like having that guy there, right? It, it, what was yeah. his name? He died. I can't remember. Anyway, but it was like having that guy there for full metal jacket. And I mean, it was just so serious. I remember, you remember when you, uh, you I mean, it was like flatulence. Like that was your I, thing. I actually, I didn't do it. <laughs> I remember the day when he thought you did. No, so I can tell. I mean, the, one of the first. I think it may have been the first day I came back from Brazil, and I actually find I spoke Portuguese, right? Speak that much English, and I remember I were doing these drills where you go, you you jog back to the mat one end of the wall, and then you turn around, and then you're doing like, you know, forward rolls or shrimps or whatever. And somebody had, you know, farted and kept going, and then uh -huh. like. He's like says something in Portuguese like motherfucker piece of shit like fucking farting in here like mother. Right. He looked at me and I'm like, no fuel. Like <laughs> no fuel. <laughs> like I didn't do that. You know what I mean? Like so you could. But you know what's interesting about that period of time is like when he came back, when he started there, it was the exact same time that I started kind of going through what I went through. Right. So it was like his his whole style was so the opposite of why I love jujitsu, what I loved about jujitsu and it being loose and, 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 and inquisitive and, um, and just light and fun. But, you know, like, you know, I'm obviously, even before anybody was there, when Jacques Day was there, we always trained hard. Everybody yeah. always, you know, you know? And so it was, it was in a way it was good for me because it, made it easier for me to transition kind of my professional life out. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I, you know, I never had a professional life as far as jujitsu was good. I mean, I still train, I'll still train two or three days a week until my body just won't take it anymore. But, um, yeah, that, that point in my life, even though I like him, um, and he's hard nosed as hell. I, my game grew much more rapidly when Lucas showed up, when yeah. Lucas, sh when Lucas showed up, even though my game's more of a, of course, a top game, um, Lucas showed me, you didn't always have to move forward. 
is something I picked up from Lucas because he would, that was the heaviest light guy I'd ever felt on top of me in my life. Yeah. He, he was, he has that, he has that exactly like he's Fabio Gurgel's kind of like that. And two, it's like, you don't have to rush to get to the next position. All I got to do is find a way to, when I'm like, I'm in your, in your guard, I got to find a way to position myself so that my limbs are in a more mechanically dominant position than your limbs. So if you want to move, you have to use more energy than I have to use to stop you. And if I can keep doing that long enough, you're going to wear down or I'm going to see an opening. And so. And he and, gains that six more inches of space. Yeah. And so that's he how. He doesn't give it back. That, that's how my game really became. And it's, it's still like that. I, I, I find, you know, because I want to use. I want to be as efficient as possible. But what's funny is, again, coming full circle, I realized that in a way, you know, as you get older, you start using jiu-jitsu to, to allow you to, to stay in shape. You use it for cardio. And it's like sometimes I could roll. I could have like a day of rolls. And I was like, I, I wasn't smoked. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so I really, I was like, all right, I got to start passing on my feet again. I got to yeah. stand up and start throwing legs. I got to start, you know, because I realized, wow, if I, re if I, if I want to stay in shape doing jujitsu, I'm, I'm going to have to try harder, right? It's kind of the opposite of what you think. You want to be as efficient as possible, but some days, you know, your efficiency. Being efficient doesn't mean you're being really yeah. active. And your efficiency is in a, in, in a, in a sense of product of your fitness, right? If, if you're super, super fit, you can do a lot and not use that much energy. But if you're not fit, the amount that you can use and keep going is very low. So you do have to still challenge your your uh, your aerobic endurance sometimes to roll. So I, I like force myself to to do that now from time to time. So um, hang on a minute. I gotta go to the restroom. Talk to Stackhouse for a second. Okay. He's a connoisseur of jujitsu. He'll love it. A connoisseur. I, I don't know about a connoisseur, but I, I am a practitioner. <laughs> How long have you been doing jiu-jitsu? Uh, full on, all together, eight and a half years. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, I'm a uh, purple belt. So, I've uh, been training for a while. But, um, like I said, I, I've been training long enough to know how bad I suck. Damn, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been as far as like I mean that like I know that there's guys out there that are monsters, and so like I'm not one that comes in going, oh, I've got the best everything, I've got the answer to everything. Like I catch high level guys, but like it it takes a lot of work for me to catch a lot of guys. But when you were talking earlier, I it verbatim sounded like. I was looking into a mirror about jujitsu. Like I, w I was not the good student. I was not the, and jujitsu was the first thing that I saw that I could break down in a way to where I could learn it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's rewarding. It's like, it gives you that thing. You know, I, I like liken maybe like the way you are with jujitsu. I'm like with guitar, like I've been playing guitar since I was 10 years old, but it, um, you know, I was really into it for a few years and then I've always played off and on, um, like I play a cup, you know, right. Like I'll go like a month without playing and then I'll play every day for a week and then, right. you know, then I'll get it. But I always play. And, um, but I went several years and I, I basically just got into just playing songs. I would learn songs and I'd play them. And I realized that I wasn't learning anything. Like I, I didn't understand how anything worked. 
Right. I didn't understand guitar. how it worked. So I would never, so people say you're a guitarist. I'd say, no, I play guitar. I am not a guitarist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like those guys that they, that, you know, two guys sit down and they'll be like, all right, well, we're going to start in, uh, you know, uh, you know, a B flat, whatever. And then they'll start jamming and then they'll start harmonizing. It's just like, Jesus Christ, like your knowledge to be able to just wing this shit, you know, with somebody else, it's amazing. And so I feel like I do have that with jujitsu. I have that relationship with jujitsu, but I don't have it with guitar. But yeah. I still love guitar. I can still appreciate guitar. I'd say I have that with jujitsu, but I don't. I didn't know how to explain it. So like I would do something. I'm just now getting to the point in my career that like I can explain what I did to somebody. I will, I will do something, but I couldn't tell you how I did it. And then five minutes later, I promise you, I'm going to do some white belt stuff and just like well, completely do yeah. something. But there's always a lag with that. So like I usually, man, it's like, um, you ever, there's the four stages of learning and it's right. like, um, um, unconscious um i can't remember i'm gonna screw it up but it's like unconscious inability conscious inability conscious ability and then unconscious ability right? right so we're like you know unconscious inability is like you don't even know that you don't know how to do it and then the next stage is where you know that you don't know how to do it so you've identified this problem and then you're there for a long time and then you get to a point where you're like okay i figured out a problem to it but i have to think really hard in order to be able to do it Right. And then you get to a point where you don't even have to think about how to do it. You just do it. Yeah. And so I usually, it, for me, like with a new move. So like I taught some people some, I can't remember what it was. Um, right before things closed, maybe a few weeks before I'd be like, Hey guys, I've never taught this before. I've something I've realized that I've been doing this. I have no idea how long I've been doing it, but it, I realized that I've been doing this. Um, and I think, I think I can teach it now because there's a gap between when you're physically able to do something to where you can, you cognitively understand the principles of the movement so as to be able to articulate it to somebody else. Right. right? So that I can do something really well, but when I try to teach it, it's like, I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. Um, so here's a guy. Apparently, apparently I don't understand what's important about this move yet. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So here's a guy you've got to look up, uh, going, going back to guitar. There's a guy in Nashville, and I was in Nashville uh, doing some work, I don't know, a couple of months ago now. Seems like I've been, we've been quarantined for fucking ever. But uh, I was in Nashville, and I got turned on to this guy that was playing at this local jam that, you know, just the locals, well, I guess he's at a local jam. It was where all the locals were going, but his name was Billy Strings. And he's like the thing in Nashville right now, as far as guitar player, you, you should look him up on Instagram. Billy strings. Uh, that house actually hashtag fucking Billy strings. Cause that fucker is amazing. Okay. I'll tag player. you. You've heard of Tommy Emmanuel, right? Huh? You've heard of Tommy Emmanuel, right? No, that's not. my acoustic guitar hero. He signed, he signed my acoustic guitar. I've seen him like four or five times. Um, I mean, he, you know, he does Travis picking, which is that like, um, boom, bum, boom, bum, boom, bum. but he'll do it on top of, you know, the melodies that he's playing and he's adapted all of these songs. Um, like he does amazing grace. Um, what did you think about the guy? What did you think about the opera amazing grace when he walked out of the church the other day and saying that, did you see that? No, I didn't. 
Oh my God. You should, you should YouTube that tonight because, uh, oh my God, I can't remember what he's not. I want to say Pavarotti, but that's bullshit. No, not him. I know who you're talking about. I remember when this was going to go. He's a blind guy. He's, he's blind. He's the Italian opera singer. Uh, freaking amazing. But he sang within the, the church. Kelly? Yes. Thank you. He sang within the church, Italian, in, in Italian, right? So the, the number, the, the songs that he did, I think he did three or four songs that were Italian. It was just one, um, one player that is, uh, uh, my brain's not working. I'm not thinking of harmonica. He was on a, not piano, but a, uh, the organ, Oregon. Thank you. He was on an organ and he was playing. He did like four in Italian and it was amazing, right? It was amazing, but not knowing Italian, it was great. I was actually driving home from my farm and I was like, this is freaking amazing. I've got it on my screen, like in my truck. Playing. While you're driving. What's well, YouTube? What's well, YouTube is on like my, whatever, whatever my radio face is. So I didn't have to do anything. Right. I could just listen to it through my speakers. But anyway, this guy walks out of the, and then it cuts, right? He gets through his third or first song, whatever it was. And he, and then it cuts to the outside of the church. This is old Italy and he's blind and he's walking directly towards a microphone. And you can tell he's probably counted it several times. So he knows how far he has to walk right yeah. in a straight line, but he walks to that perfect spot and he, and there's no one else around. There's no one anywhere. It's just him and this microphone and he sings amazing grace in English. And it was next level. I mean, they played it on CNN. They played it all over the place. But if you missed it, you should YouTube it. I'm there. I'll do it right there. Because you talk about, I mean, not much. I'm kind of a hard ass, and not much draws a tear from me. But I'm driving home from Alabama, and I've got a little tear in my eye because this guy got it done. I mean, I was so <laughs> – just wowed by him, but uh, that's one thing that I, I, I've gotten into in the last. I don't. I don't even know how long. Maybe like the last year or so was singing. Like I've, I've, you know, sung in the past. You know, I used to do some gigs, um, acoustic gigs, but you know, I didn't know how to sing. You know, when I would try to hit a higher note, I would you know just make my voice louder and yell it. Yeah. And, um. You know, over the last few years. Um, you've had these professional singers and singing coaches, you know, try to build up their following. So they make these YouTube pages and they critique songs or they, they be like, they, they, um, that critique, but they review a song. So they go, oh, you guys have been sending me this, that I'm going to react to this song. And as they react, they're watching this, somebody sing it and they'll be like, Oh, I love how he does this placement with his O or how he's going from chest voice to head voice. And he's gives, you know, positioning of the vowel in the front of his mouth. And I was like, wow. I said, that is There's so a lot funny. more to this, but it was like, but it was the same. It was like the same thing. I was like, now I see that there's a whole way to think about this and learn it. And you know, there's things that I'd notice when I would sing, I was like, why is my voice, you know, like sometimes it, it's really easy to sing and sometimes it's hard. And then I started to learn, you know, about vocal warmups and, and, you know, you know, like drinking, you know, cold things versus hot things and, you know, the certain mouth exercises you do and where sound actually comes from and stuff. And I've really gotten into that. And it was like, it's crazy because I only really sing at home and in my car, you know what I mean? But I practice these things. And so 
uh, it was like um, maybe two months ago, I realized just by watching these things and thinking about them that I learned how to, instead of, instead of trying to hit high notes from my throat and scream, I can do it from the front of my mouth now. And it's, it sounds almost, it's not exactly the same, but it sounds almost the same and it requires no effort. And I'm just like, efficiency. It blew my mind. Like, like songs that when, when I would sing them, that have to be the last song that I sang in a, when I would play. Now I can sing it and then sing like five other songs. It's just like, it's so like singing. It's, it's like, a, it's like the next thing for me that I'm really interested in learning. And so, um, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm really starting to think about maybe taking some lessons and, um, um, Maybe. I'm going to take, I'm taking dance lessons. As soon as this freaking CV is done or COVID-19, whatever is done, I'm taking dancing lessons. Like I want to learn how to do some, some basic things like at Johnny, Johnny's hideaway yeah. type dancing, right? God damn. You're Johnny hide. You're Johnny's hideaway now. No, 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 no. I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm not that old yet, man, but uh, no, I'm not hanging out at Johnny's Hollywood, but there's dance studios all over the place, but you know what I think, I, I swear to God, you know, this is kind of a business podcast, so we'll get back to business at some point when we want to, but something that I think would work, and I, I tell this to my daughter, my daughter is like 16 years old, but anytime, anytime we see on movies, like big band, big band bars, from uh, what would that era be? That era would be like the thirties and forties. I really think that would, that would flash. I don't know if it would last for very long. Oh, cool. Yeah. But to be able to go in and there's dinner around the edge and there's a dance floor, there's brass bands. Like we're talking Trump. Yeah, you got, you got guys throwing women around in the air and stuff. Yeah. I mean, really getting it done. I think we, I mean, I get it. I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm getting too old. Maybe I'm a fucking idiot. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too old, but that really appeals to me. It appeals to me like that would work. And I would, I would go to that. I would go to listen because I remember, uh, three years ago. Uh, yeah. Three years ago, I'm in, um, New Orleans doing some work and you know, uh, What's the main drag there, guys? Uh, Bourbon Street. Bourbon yeah, Street. Bourbon Street shit, right? Bourbon Street shit. As far as music goes, it's just you know people throwing up on the side of the road, side of the sidewalks, and it's and drinking so too gross. much or what? It's so fucking disgusting, right? But if you go to the, I think that's the southern end or the north end. I can't remember. It's one of the other ways. The north end. That's Frenchman Street. Bourbon will run into Frenchmans, and Frenchmans is where the locals will go. So I rolled down to, and I asked some people and they said, yeah, you don't want to hang out on bourbon, go to Frenchman's, you know, it'll, you'll like it more. I didn't know what to expect, but I rolled down to Frenchman street and it's 11 o'clock. I'd already had got something to eat. So I just rolled in, sat, bellied up to a bar. There's a, there's a stage, you know, behind him, a small place and off the streets come these, I swear to God, they were kids. They're like teenagers, teenagers, early twenties, but some of them were teenagers with trumpets in their hand and trombones and saxophones. And they break down, and they set up and start playing. And I thought, awesome. 
this is unique as hell. I've, where could you go to get that sound and to get that atmosphere? And I mean, those trombones, if anything that took me that night, it was those trombone players. It was just freaking amazing. Guess who was sitting next to me that I didn't even notice? I was so wrapped up. Wasn't Lenny Kravitz, was it? No, 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 no. It was Dan Aykroyd. What the fuck? <laughs> no shit. That's the How most random person ever. I was sitting in a bar. On How Fritz fat was he? Street. Oh, he was huge. I didn't even know who he was, but I he had a nice suit on. He had a nice suit on. Like, really? Yeah, it was like a one of those three-button, kind of looked like something would come out of the 20s or something, but it was this nice like pinstripe suit, and he had one of those felt hats on with a little feather in the right-hand side. But he was dancing, man. He had this younger woman with him that was with him, and they were playing that music, and he got her up on the dance floor and started dancing. I didn't even know who the fuck he was. He was just some dude. And I was like, because I was thinking to myself, that's strong. That, that suit and that hat is strong. I mean, it takes somebody to get up there with it, right? And he's got this younger younger lady with him, and he's dancing. But the uh, bartender gives me another drink and I'm like, that guy's cool. And he, she said, yeah, that's Dan Aykroyd. It seems like the kind of place where like you'd like put your finger up and the bartender would slide like an old fashioned down the bar and everybody'd lift up their drinks to let it pass. It's, it's absolutely what it felt like. And I wouldn't have believed her that it was Dan Aykroyd until he finished dancing from that dance. He came by and he sat right next to me with the girl. He didn't want to talk to me because he was, he's trying to get laid. I mean, he was really tight with the girl. Right. But I looked at him and he smiled and winked over my head. And he, he said, do you like ghostbusters? And I Shut said, the fuck up. He, said, he said, do you like ghostbusters? I said, I fucking loved it. <laughs> He said, did you like Ghostbusters? That's what he said. He knew. I mean, he knew. I knew who he was. At least I was thinking that's who it was, right? He goes, do you like Ghostbusters? I said, fuck. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was Dan Ackley. That was a great night. That was a freaking great night. Uh, had so many great nights. <laughs> it was. So... <sighs> What else you want to talk about, Chris? Mm. Tell me what it. Tell me this. Tell me this, because there may be some. We've talked jujitsu. We've talked guitar. What is it like for those that tune in to me because they want a little financial advice? What is it like? What kind of education? What kind of resources wow. does the medical schools slash community? Well, I don't know what it's like anymore, though, man. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. I I, I haven't been in medical school for six Four. years. Holy shit. It has been six years, hasn't it? You know what I mean? And so it's like maybe it's a whole different ballgame now. But Well, just talk to I will tell you. When you came up. So let, let me tell you this first. Um, my, I, uh, my co-fellow, so I'm a sports medicine fellowship. My co-fellow was telling me he's lucky. Like, he doesn't have any debt. Um his parents like paid for a school and it's like, just, I'm just like, I'm, I can't even imagine that, but he's like, you know, so luck, you know, good for him. But his cousin, he was saying, yeah, you know, it's just, he was like talking about, I don't remember what advice he was giving his cousin, but I told him that we had spoken and I was looking at my budget and I was doing some, like I was 
writing some things out, looking at interest rate calculations and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, my, uh, my cousin's, um, she's got a, she's got like $450,000 for the debt. And I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I told her, I was just like, he's like, man, you're never, you're never going to pay that off. You might as well just pay like this, this <laughs> amount for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay, but you realize that unless you have public service loan forgiveness, which means that you work in like a public medical center. Um, and that doesn't work all the time. So like if you want to work in academics, academics would count, right? Because you know, all these academic places are, are, are public, but she's a dentist, right? So it, it's not that easy to do. I, I don't know, but most dentists are, most dentists are private practice. So anyway, I was like, but you don't understand. There is no repayment plan where, you're going to just pay this small amount. So the minimum amount is um, 10. It's, it's like no more than 10% of your gross income above 150% of the federal poverty guidelines or something, or the, the guy federal poverty guidelines or the state poverty guidelines. Or of your zip code that you live in. I, I don't know. I can't remember now that I looked back at it, if it's the state or if it's federal, I think it's the state. And it's based upon that. And so like, that's what you call, that's what you do pay as you earn. Mm-hmm. Pay as you earn is like a 15 year program and you pay the minimum, you pay that percentage. Right. And then at the end of that 15 years, your loan is forgiven. But I can't remember what she was end up having to pay, but it was like, it was like $800,000 or something like that. It was outrageous. And I was like, all right, so what's the, and so we started putting in some numbers with the minimum that she could pay to be paying off some of her interest right now. And it was like, in order to even make a, even to, to ever be able to pay it off so that you would be able to catch up to the loan, it was like she had to pay like nearly $2,000 a month or something like that. Sure. She couldn't even, like, if you paid less than that, you couldn't even, it, it would, the Good calculation is like, the calculation was like, you will not be able to pay off this loan or something. I may be wrong about the numbers, but it was crazy. And you could see his eyes like real wide. And he was just like, man, wow. And I was like, dude, what the fuck? I was like, she an idiot. She took out like, so there's, there are two types of loans when I was in. So there's the, the regular um, federal student loan, which was 6.8%. I don't know what it is right now. And then there was a thing called a grad plus loan. It was uh, 8.9%. And that was for like any extra expenditure. So there was a maximum you could take out in federal loans, which just conveniently matched my school's tuition, right? Um, That's a fuck job, by the way. It, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and then, but then if you wanted any money to live on, right? Like if you wanted mo- borrowing money for a house or groceries, people would take out like $20,000 in grad plus loans. And they, people were living like these nice apartments and leasing cars. And it was just like, yeah, I knew people that like, <clears throat> nearly half a million dollars, right? It's crazy. So, I mean, they, they didn't tell you anything, but I knew because at that time I was really into like Ron Paul. Yeah. And so I learned a lot. I, you know, knew about fractional banking and it's not, I'm not a big, I'm not a, a liber, a pure libertarian anymore, or a gold standard person, a hundred percent by any means at this point, but it made me look at numbers differently. It made me look at debt differently. And, and so I was like, man, okay you know, how much can I, you know, take out and how long is it going to take me to pay? And so I didn't want to take out anything. Right. Um, And so I would be the first person to submit my student loan application every year because the first person that got in 
you also got sent a lot of these other opportunities. Sometimes like one time I got a, a loan that was like, uh, uh, like 4% and I got a loan for $4,000. So that reduced how much I had to borrow. It wasn't that much, but it helped me a little bit. And then I got a grant like another 2000. So, um, but they, they don't, they don't, they don't tell you anything. They, they allow these, these, these comp, these third party companies to come in and give lectures to you or, but they're really advertisements for you to sign up with them right? They're these debt management companies or whatever. One of them actually was funny. I remember sitting in on it and I was like, I raised my hand. I was like, so basically, because what they were trying to do was they were trying to figure, they were trying to teach us ways to, it was like they were, it was like these schemes to like not have to pay off your loan. Right. You know what I mean? And I was like, so basically you're saying all of us here, we agreed to take this money out to go to school, knowing that we're going to have this big income and you're trying to teach us how we just don't pay it back. And I was like, well, who's going to pay it back? But, so anyway, but interestingly, that company, um, I can't remember the name of the company, but I read a few years later that they got busted for fraud and stuff. So right. I don't know how many people signed up with them, but that's basically the only education you get. People think, oh, we're going to make plenty of money or whatever, and it's 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 ridiculous. No, li listen, I, I mean, I spent years in medical, and I mean, oncology, un I, private practice oncology doctors, they don't make as much as they used to, but private practice oncology doctors made a mint because they could buy the chemo cheap because they had a bunch of patients. And then they would control everything. They would control the pet. They would pet scans or they would control the scans. They would control the chemo. They would control everything, right? But you would still find doctors in their 50s that still had over $100,000 in student loan debt. Now, they've been out since probably, what, 35, maybe 33, 35. Yeah, but, man, they had to have a house. They had, hey. to, they had to drive a nice car. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> oncologists, right? I mean, how are you going to be an oncologist? Listen, I, I've had this discussion. You, you're no different. If you're, if you become a doctor and you think you're different, I, I applaud you. I applaud all doctors for what they do and the education that they went through and all that they learned and God help them. They'll make a difference in, in the world, but you better act just like everybody else when it comes to money because math that doesn't give a shit doesn't give a fuck and a bank doesn't give a fuck and whoever and especially the federal government currently right now does not care and you cannot bankrupt out of it yeah. the only thing you can do is move to you, you know can't some even other die out of your can you die out of your debt well, it doesn't transfer to your spouse, so okay. you're okay. But <laughs> for any of you physicians considering suicide is a possible escape from this. Yeah, I mean, but, but then you spent half your life to do, and I mean that is a scary fact. I mean, when I was when I was I did a lot of my career in medical, and the running joke was the running yeah, joke. You make more than all the doctors. Yeah. Well, that's one thing. Yeah, then some of them, not all of them. Yeah, but. The suicide rate. You know what the suicide rate was? It was a forty. It was a forty-year-old white pathologist. 
High rates of suicide. Pathology you know? blows. Pathology <laughs> blows. You know why? Because it's just like, and you know where the other high rate of suicides are? And dentists. And they think it, I, I've read some studies on it. They think it's because of how, the, how they view their world. They wake up in the morning just like we all wake up. And then we get, get ready and go to work. But their worlds get smaller. Yeah. So they go, they, a dentist goes, and his, 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 his world goes from where he wakes up to a person's mouth to a magnifying glass to a person's root canal or tooth. It's just smaller and smaller. And the but same thing that literally. pathologist. Same thing happens to us pathologists. Dude, pathologists are just hunched over a microscope all day. Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, they're smart guys, and I have like a lot of great friends who are pathologists, but and, and frankly, and they're still alive, so that's a good thing. But when you think about it, the running joke for salespeople, which is where I was, when the new guys would come into a company when we were doing, you know, lab sales, they would say they would ask the old senior senior guys, "Hey, I don't really, I don't really know this hospital. Where do I find the pathologist?" And the running joke was, "Find the deepest, darkest hole in the in the hospital, and you'll find them." Ugh. And it's true. Pathology is one of those things. It's like um, OBGYN where, or yeah, there's a couple specialties where it was like, if let's say I didn't match into my specialty, which is another thing that is just fucked about medicine. You can get all the way through medical school, put up through everything, get all of that debt. And if you don't get the residency, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. So you're a doctor, but it doesn't mean anything. Being a doctor at a medical school is the, is, being a brand new, you know, if you're an intern, you actually have a job, but being a doctor after medical school is the most worthless thing you can be in medicine. It's more worthless than an MA or a nursing assistant, anything, because at least they can work, right? right? You can't work unless you have an internship, at least. If you have an internship and you finish it, you can get a license, but good luck finding a job without a residency. But, um, if, if let's say I went through and the only thing that I could get was OBGYN, I would do something else with my life. I, I wouldn't, I couldn't, I, it, I didn't, they you know, make like, good, but listen. yeah, they make money, but man, I, you couldn't do it. No, no. I, if pathology, I mean, that's, it'd be like, it'd be like saying like, it's like, Oh, because you've done X, you have to do Y. And it's like, <laughs> no, I, this, I didn't become a doctor to do this, right? I can use my talents as a physician doing something else. I would go, I would probably, I don't know, do something in business or teach anatomy or something and then get my PhD in exercise phys or, or something and, you know, work at, you know, something like that, work in faculty to medical school. But man, like, I don't understand. I mean, look, I guess people love that, but pathology for me is just a no-go, like OBGYN, not a chance. No, I couldn't... Uh... It was so against my character because um, I'm a I'm a gregarious, outgoing, in your face kind of guy, and I don't know that I was very successful in pathology sales. I was very successful in oncology sales, but I don't know that I was that successful in in pathology sales because another joke that we would tell in pathology sales is we would say, "Do you want to know?" Especially the new guys. Do you know the difference between an extroverted pathologist versus an introverted pathologist? <laughs> and they would say, you know, 
it had to be an industry joke, but they would say, no, what do you mean? And like, well, the extroverted pathologist will look at your shoes instead of his own when he talks to you. <laughs> and it's, you know, to any pathologist that's listening, it's not for everyone, but it pretty much holds across the board. It's, it's, it's just a crazy, there, there's no way I would go through medical school to do that. And I mean, there's some pathologists done some great it's things. It's strange too, as far as I know, and I might be wrong, but as far as I know, pathologists don't even have to do a regular intern year, which every other physician has to do a, some kind of general internship year. Now, in a lot of programs, your intern year is very tailored to your specialty. Um, some programs like PM&R or uh, PM&R radiology, most neurology, um, there's a couple anesthesiology. You have to do a general internship year. So, and in every other specialty, you're spending a year, your first year of residency as an intern. So you're on the wards being the absolute bitch of the hospital, taking shit, not sleeping, but dealing with patients all the time. Right. Pathology is the only specialty I think that they don't do that. <clears throat> they yeah. just go into pathology. Well, so they know they have to, they're never with patients. No, they're never with patients, but they do have to take some specialties like, you're a you're a surgical path basically all right, of no 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 that, 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 surgical that, pathology no pathology training is grueling I mean yeah. it's brutal in its own way like you like you have a mountain of slides that you have to get through it, dude it's it's brutal it's horrible yeah absolutely but, and, and then they have a specialist for do fellowship so I think pathology is four years but almost all of them do a fellowship or two. So there are most of them are in training for at least five years. Yeah. You know, I think that there's two in, in medicine, there are two doctors, doctors, right? One of them's a radiologist and then one of them's a pathologist that um, now depending about what field you're in, you need one more than the other. But if you're a surgeon, they're you they're your doctor, right? Like you depend on them to tell you what how shit is. Yeah. Radiology that they know. They're the, they're the little niche that's that every other doctors need, you know? That's something that's going to go away. Well, it's going to go away really slowly, but... Again, again, it's one of those things like we talked about earlier. It's not just going to be like all of a sudden radiologists are gone, but there's going to be... You're not going to need like as many no. radiologists. No, it's slowly going away, and it's always going to be based on treatment, especially in oncology. I mean, the radiologists... <laughs> hey! Sorry, I got Jesus. <laughs> Luke, Luke got up here and Toby doesn't like it. That's a very vicious fucking chihuahuas. My God. Anyway, well, let's let's venture back. I mean, we've been on a long time. We've been on an hour and a half, but still, I want to talk about. You don't really get any. So what you were saying, you don't really get any training. No one comes in. No one do the math. Hard, you don't put it this way. You don't get any lectures. It's not like you get lectures and then there's like a test, which I think it could be useful. Like you could have it as part of like, for instance, in the first um, trimester of medical school, because we were on trimesters. Um, I was most of the first met that Sarah's turn on the light. So um, uh, it was gross anatomy and then everything that went along with gross anatomy. So like gross anatomy, embryology, um, some, um, some patho so gross anatomy pathology some embryology and then um we had like a half of that trimester you had a course in biostats right yeah so just like knowing 
positive, you know, positive predictive value versus sensitivity versus specificity and how to use um, different types of t-tests and stuff like that for stats so you can analyze papers and understand what it means. Um, I think that they should do something like that for finance. No, I absolutely. It, it would be, the only thing is it would be weird. It's like, how do you integrate that, right? So like, let's say you fail that class. Should that really count against you in medical school, right? That would be the only well, thing, it, right? It seems like I, it's I, I, think, I, I, think I, I don't know how you integrate it. And you're talking about testing it. Well, you're because, because that's the only, because honestly in medicine, in medical school, you're so overwhelmed. If, if there's free lectures for you to, for your benefit, you're not going. You're not going to take it. Right. Well, the same thing, the same thing goes though. You're, you're moving towards one of the higher paid uh, career paths in the U S when you become a doctor, that's just, that's, you are, you're part of the 1% when you get up there to making that doctor money, but it, it is very in line with like, uh, what can I take? Maybe an NFL player, right? The average an NFL player makes it's like three years. Right. So he makes it. So he's probably making the, the, the league average, which is what? $300,000. So he's making 300,000. He's played his entire freaking life. Yeah. <laughs> beat up, beat up, beat up. And the average, the, all of them make it. I mean, we're not talking about Tom Brady money. We're talking about the average person that makes it to the NFL makes $300,000 for three years. That's yeah. 900 grand with zero. Skill. I mean, I don't know what they do. Maybe somebody could come on and say, hey, you know, you're wrong. They give us all these, all these resources and all this to try to help us. But Jesus Christ, at least for you. Not if they have adopted it. Like when I was in college, when I played in college, I saw so many guys blow, blowing through their scholarship checks, and now I know them now. And when they got to the professionals, they did not manage their money. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely did not. I, I just wonder where we're failing. And it's something I'd like to take up as maybe a side project. Well, with, for, for medicine, I mean. Like high school kids. I mean, I mean for, for, yeah, I mean, look. Start there. Yeah, like teaching people, like just the idea of the time value of money. Um, I mean, there's so many things. Just, yeah, under, getting people to understand what interest is. What does that mean? You know, like. Um, most people don't know what a car actually cost you. Most people could not get on a calculator and tell me that I've just bought a car at a used car at 5% interest. What's it going to cost me in total in four years? Yeah. Most people couldn't do that on a, on a, on a calculator. It's a, if somebody says it's a low interest rate, it just sounds like a good deal. That's right. So you say, okay, or, I'll take or you sit there in front of them. I, I mean, I've been a part of this when I was younger. You know, I sit there in front of them and I wanted whatever car I wanted. I remember, I remember what it was. I bought a Lincoln LS when I was 23 and it was beautiful. At least I thought it was beautiful at the time. Beautiful car. And I sit there in front of them. And they're like, it's what do you want your payment to be? <clears throat> I remember what they said. What do you want your payment to be? And I said, well, I can afford this. And they said, okay, well, that will be a five-year loan. They never talk about what that car actually cost in five years at whatever 6% or whatever interest yeah. that I paid. And, I mean, I was stupid then, too, and I didn't know how to do the calculation. Those are the things that I want to teach people, and I try to teach people when, when I work with them, is 
is basic things, basic things that people do not have, which is, you know, we've talked about before, but it's, do you have six months of income? I mean, everything. If, yeah. if, every, if it, the world ended, I mean, granted, we'll be back to trading bullets and growing gardens and living communally. But basically, if this thing stops, do you have six months to survive? If you don't, let's not talk about anything else. But, but that's why, like, I, I, you know, when I started doing everything, I knew I wanted to talk to you because you, because, you know, I've watched you, like, since I was young. I mean, I remember you were in your mid-20s, and you already had, like, you had like rental properties and you, I remember, you know, a few years after you bought that house in, um, where's that? Where was that? In Austell? No, it was Mableton. Mableton. I mean, you had like paid that off and I'm like, okay, so this is somebody that, you know, like they, you aren't just, you've, you've, you actually have figured it out. You're not just someone like showing off money. And so like, I, I knew I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, well, it's anybody who shows you, Usually doesn't have a lot, unless they're absurdly wealthy. Obscene doesn't matter. That's right. When it's obscenely wealthy, yes, they can. They'll show it off because that's what they've got. That's what they got in their life, and that's who they are. So they need to project that. So one thing that I I thought about when you talk about six months of rent uh, or or, uh, of of finances saved up was, you know, like it was really interesting how there was this dichotomy in the, in people's responses to coronavirus that were independent of science, right? Totally independent of science. And I don't want to get on that topic, but one of the things that I've talked about is like, okay, you can't, right. They're both things are important, but you can't, you can't just open you like you can't close and then open up before everything is ready to open up just because you can't take it anymore. Right. Like, like just because like you're frustrated, it's like, ah, we've been closed long enough. That's not how it works. You ever been happier to be, you ever been happier to be up North and me be in Georgia right now? Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Unbelievable. Don't go free wild here. Unbelievable. But, um, so, but one thing that's been interesting is people are like a lot of the people that were, you know, like, you know, pro, you know, I don't want to say pro business. Like I'm anti-business people like we need to open up now, you know, let these small business back to work. I'm like, all these people are the same people that I've seen, or not all of them, but a lot of them are the same people that I've seen talk about responsibility and taking care of yourself. And it's like, and then they're talking about, well, you know, this disease only affects people that are overweight and you need to be responsible for your own health. I'm like, just like you need to be responsible for your own finances. Oh, you, oh, you don't have six months saved up. You're going to go under in a month. <laughs> oh, so you weren't responsible. No. You want to talk shit about this person because they're overweight, but you aren't financially responsible. Your business is going to go under one month because you have nothing saved. Yeah, and they're the same people bitching about not getting their check. Where's and my it's check? Like, it's like, it's like, man, nobody gets out of this for free. And it's like, I hate to say it, but it's like, no business is guaranteed survival. How many businesses go under every day for random things that are out of their control? You know, it, it's unfortunate, but right now, if you if you own jujitsu, this is jujitsu is the worst possible thing you could do right now. So actually, I get I actually wrote up some ridiculously detailed guidelines, and I've been sending them out to people about reopening because I was so worried that people were going to try to do it too quick. Oh, it's oh, it's already happening. I mean, you're I don't think you are, but um, you should be a part of that. I'll invite you to that. But there's a black belt 
group at Alliance. Once you become a black belt, you get in this like Facebook group or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there is some severe arguments going on today because old boy says we're we're opening up on Monday. And I'm like, and, and, you know, it started going back. Hey, are you coming in on Monday? Would you come in on Monday? I'm like, no, I'm not coming I mean, in on Monday. Why? You can, it's like, I mean, that, that was my whole argument. I'm like, listen, for the last, and it doesn't happen at every school, but for our school, for the last, you know, some odd, not, maybe it was three months ago or four months ago, whatever it was, it was a time period where all these new influx of guys were coming in. Right, because they had Fabio's done a very good job at the business side of it with shock rays. So all these young guys are coming in, you know, and I have my bitches about it because of an old fogey, and they're not moving up. You know, they're creating these little clicks of white belts, and they don't want to roll with us because they're going to get smoked. Right, they're going to get crushed, and we're going to treat them like everybody treated us. But you know what's happening? Ringworm. Ringworm is fucking. It's like rampant. It's like going around, and I mean, Leo's doing his job. I mean, he's cleaning the mats, and they're cleaning the walls, and they're cleaning every freaking thing they can. It's not that. It's all these young guys who not looking at themselves to have ringworm, and they're coming in and training. They're spreading it all around constantly, yeah. right? So we're having this huge conversation, and I, that was going on, you know, two, three, four months ago, whatever time frame it was, but – that was a conversation we had. All his black belts got on the line with Jacques Ray the other day on a Zoom. And uh, we were talking. I'm like, they were talking about starting back up. I was like, guys, listen, we dealt with idiots two months ago, three months ago with a ringworm epidemic that we finally got stopped when we just got basically like a military in there to stop people. We're checking people. Basically, hell, if you strip down your clothes in the locker room, somebody saw a ringworm on you, you were out. Yeah. Right, we'd run you to the door. You had to snitch. Yeah, you had to snitch. So we'd run you to the door, and I'm like, "There's not going to be any sign on some person's body that we can see. How are we going to be able to stop this?" Yeah, and it's just like it, it's so random. It's just like because this guy, this the governor, this random guy who said, who like a few weeks ago said that he just found out that it can be spread by asymptomatic people. Remember that? Like a month after everybody already knew that. Listen, I, think two weeks goes, ago. Yeah, I think we're going to open up gyms and people go, all right, we can open. It's safe now. And it's like, what? Like on what planet? <laughs> because he says it, it's all of a sudden it's safe. No, it's crazy. I've seen some recommend some of the guidelines from some other gyms um, around Georgia and man, dude, you're talking about doing group training on money, like having partners and, and no sparring, but you're going to do partner drills? What's the no. difference? I, I don't know where you're looking. I'm not paying that much attention to it because I'm not going to put myself. I'm a, I want to train. Jesus Christ. I'm we training, in my, I'm training in my garage right now with my 13-year-old son. Believe me, I want to train, but I'm not putting myself in that. There's no way. So, yeah, I, I actually was on a Zoom no call, call with all of which I could and a bunch of affiliates. And I and Fabio took my guidelines and made them into a PowerPoint. And uh, I mean, they if if you have a set of guidelines that's based upon a date, you're wrong. You can't yeah. do that. It's based upon what's happening in your area with the cases. That's the best you can do. And the good thing about the better the other thing about doing it that way is that it incentivizes everybody to do the right thing. If you just give somebody a date and say, okay, on this day we're going to be good, how the fuck do you know that? 
What's a brief overview of the uh, what, what you put out? Um, so I can send it to you, but basically, I I model it after the three phase system that Trump put out. So it it, it has the same gating um, the same gating criteria for the first three phases. Now, what's different about the guidelines I created is there's four, five, and six phase four, five, and six that are unique to jujitsu because we have a unique risk, right? So the first phase is basically no different, no training. Everything stays the same. But what you're doing is you're preparing your academy for phase two. So remember, to enter phase one, you have to have 14 days. You have to have a, over 14-day period. You have to have an average decrease in the number of new cases. Or if you've dramatically expanded your testing, then you have a decrease in the, rel- in the number of the percentage of tests that come back positive. Right. So let's say if you expand your test from 1,000 to 2,000, of course, you're going to catch more positives. But what you want to see is that if your percent positive is 20%, it drops to 15% and then to 10%. So, right, you're, you're, you're catching more people, but they're fewer percentage-wise, they're coming back positive. So if you have that over 14 days, you enter into phase one. And then there's some loosening. And then again, for another 14 days, you enter into phase two. For another 14 days, you enter into phase three. So with mine, within phase two, you don't do anything. Everything stays, phase one, everything stays the same way. But what you're doing during phase one is you're preparing your academy for phase two, which means you're going to have to have somebody that's going to be screening people at the front for symptoms in, the histor- in history and doing temperature checks. You're going to have to have somebody in there that is going to make sure that there's one person in the locker room at a time and making sure that people are spread out while they're coming in and waiting for lockers. And then you're going to have to set up your mat space to allow so it's going to be basically instructor-led solo drills. The whole point is just getting people back in the academy. Instructor-led solo drills. So you're going to have to have people spread out by at least six feet. So it's going to be six by six foot squares. How do we? I don't even know how to do this. I think I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait so, till so, I grab somebody. But, yeah. So anyway, I wrote all that out, and then phase three. Th- there's a lot of things, right? So that it deals with if you have somebody that had COVID-19 recovered and they all, and then they have positive IgM and IgG. So that's a special group of people. Those people can train. So it covers basically everything, right? But it does it based upon a time frame that in your area, and I kind of define area, right? I'm not going to get into it here, but in your area, you have these, you meet these criteria and then you can loosen up. But by the time, the only way that you can get everybody to roll safely, where you can actually get people, everybody in general, except for the highly vulnerable people sparring, is once you have no local person-to-person transmission. Or you have testing that's so widely available that you can get an RT-PCR whenever you want. Right. Or we have validated the serology such that we that the positive, the false positive rate is low enough that it's safe for even if you weren't exposed for, if you have the IgG, you're safe. Because right now you could have the IgG and it's a false positive. So the test is invalidated for that. Once the FDA validates that test and everybody can get it, then we're in a different situation, right? But until that's validated and until testing is so widely available that you could get one essentially every time you wanted to come and train, the only way that we can get everybody back to rolling is when there are no cases of person-to-person transmission in your area. Now, some people might still be in the hospital. There might still be active cases, but there's no local person-to-person transmission because that you know in that situation, it's not around the community. Yeah. So th- th- that's the reality. And people, do, but people are like, well, we got to get people back to training. I'm like, what do you want me to say? Do you want me to say, okay, it's not okay. 
Right. This is the way it is. And it's just, um, so it's, it's, it's a shitty situation, but it's like, I just. Yeah, it's like ripping our fucking heart out. I mean, for me, I've so noticed mentally and physically too, not being able to train, but I mean, I get it. I'm still not going to, I'm still not going to put myself at risk just because some guy in middle Georgia said, Hey, we're going to open back up Friday. It's insane. Or Monday. Sorry. It's Monday. Yeah, Brian can't. I mean, that guy. That dude has opened up all the beaches too. Tybee Beach, everything. Everything state run, open Monday. Yeah, I mean, why not? Just, it seems like a good time, right? I don't see any cases around me. I mean, fuck it. Let's try. Let's see what happens. I'm not sick. My family's not sick. We're fine. Yeah. It's cool. Vegas is gambling with everybody. Dude, did you watch the interview with her with um with Anderson Cooper? I haven't you're, seen it yet. I've had people unbelievable. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like if you have like a crazy aunt that's like sixty and then she's recently she got divorced and now she feels like she's like, ah, fuck it, I'm gonna run for office or and she's somehow <laughs> not on the ballot and like won, and then she's just winging it. She's just saying everything that's in her head, and you're it just was like basically the Jesus Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Like <laughs> some of you might die. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar enough. I don't get that reference, but I'm sure. Sure. Oh, oh motherfucker! You've not watched Lord Farquaad. I'm you didn't watch Shrek. I saw Shrek, but I don't. I don't remember. You it. need to watch it again to get. Yeah, the if you don't get that joke, you need to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> but just like it's just like it's like. She's sitting there in her backyard drinking her Long Island iced tea, just like going, ah, things shouldn't be, rah. you know, and like, and then you start asking her questions and she's like, well, that's not my responsibility. I'm like, that's your responsibility. Do you love that? It's like, what kind of safety message are you, are you going to put on the owners? Like, that's not my job. That's their job. <laughs> competition, competition. And dude, do you see the bar? Anderson Cooper took off his glasses and he's like, he puts his glasses back on. <laughs> Dude, I know he can be like a cocky fuck sometimes, but dude, he I mean that was ridiculous. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. There you give us two or three whenever this passes, you give us a, some time, there's going to be some excellent television to go back to. Oh, I mean some excellent television to go back to. It's just like, do you remember when they said this? And we're going to be like, I cannot fucking believe Dude, I mean, I, it's, it's, you go, go back, just watch all the television in, um, like February, like clips from February. I mean, Dr. Drew, remember when Dr. Drew was like slamming his hand on, on the table, like slamming his fist to the table going, ah, people are blowing this out of proportion and I'm pissed off about it. And it's just like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you still going to slam your hands on the Dude, table? I mean, he was like fucking pissed and he was in like, I mean, like he was saying that from Fox News in New York. It was just fucking crazy. They still have the one doctor that was saying like, oh, this is, you know, the flu is way more serious. He's still their medical expert that comes on every day. Isn't Dr. Drew not even a medical doctor? No, he, he was trained in internal medicine, then, but then it did an addiction medicine fellowship. Uh, Basically, okay. so in that way, he's almost been functioning kind of like a psychiatrist for the last, I mean, he probably hasn't. That's right, that's right. probably hasn't worked in internal medicine in, 30 years. Yeah. But he's a, he's a legitimate physician, but. But he's good for TV. Yeah, he was dead wrong about that. <laughs> At least, I mean, he, he, he apologized very quietly last week. 
Yeah. That is so far what was going to happen is not going to happen. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting to be. Guys, we did an hour and 48 minutes. Is this our longest one, Stackhouse? I think so. I think it is. Chris, yeah. always count on you for great commentary. I have to say it was a good conversation. Um, how are we going to end up? We're going to end up like we always end up. What I need? What do I need my listeners to do? I need my listeners to read more books, be as intelligent as possible, and then what are we going to follow as far as, as far as financial prerogatives? We're going to get six months of income before we do anything. I don't want you to find a financial advisor. I don't want you to find a planner. I don't want you to find an insurance guy. I don't want you to talk to anybody, really, until you have six months of income. Because until you can do that, nothing else matters. Second tier, what are we going to do? We're going to take our risk off the table. We're going to watch risk mitigation. What are we going to do? If you're a doctor like Chris is here, or if you are a lawyer, or if you are some career path that caused you to be in school eight, six, eight, ten years, and it's going to, you spent half your life becoming what you're going to become, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to make sure that you have enough disability insurance that if something happens, something falls on you and you cannot per perform the job that you've trained half your life to do, that somebody's going to pay you for that the rest of your life. You got it? Yeah. That's sure, disability insurance. Let's not forget the um, that uh, straight A's. I'm going to um, – next. so I'll, I'll send it to you and then put it on your um, – like talk about it the next – podcast that you have so people can have a good fucking amazing book you know i've been seeing here this pack of crackers in my hand that i've wanted to eat so badly but i've been seeing it literally they're open and they've been next to the screen just out of view because i kept thinking man there's got to be a good time for me to eat them but there hasn't been i've been really i've been holding never, the last hour there's never gonna be a, they're never to gonna be a good eat them. never gonna be a good time guys yeah. send me that book though because i want to know i write down all the books that come up and then i read them because and then i bring them back up because we manifest our life whatever we talk about we think about in our life it tends to happen so I always think positive thoughts um but i do want to follow up if you're in that career path like chris is or a lawyer or some high earning let's say one percentile type career path disability insurance is your first thing because if you have to take that risk off the table so that your earnings will come in. In a situation like uh, a lawyer or a doctor where you have, uh, uh, you have a loan to pay off of, guess what? In disability insurance, there's a rider. There's a rider that all good professionals are going to put on you so that if you become disabled, actually the insurance is not only going to pay you for your income, it's also going to pay your loan off. Too. Shut the fuck up. Well, I, you didn't tell me that before, so I'm glad you finished. Wait, I was waiting to you know, <laughs> blow, up, blow up the balloons. But absolutely, if, if, any, if you buy insurance from anybody and you are in that sort of box and you don't get that rider, get rid of them that day because they're an idiot. They don't know how to mitigate risk. Second tier, get your life insurance. For me, I'm prone for permanent insurance, but getting started out is fine. You can get some term, that's fine. But take care of the person on the other side of you because if you're gone, they're still going to have – it's going to take male or female. It doesn't matter about the sexes. It's going to take male and female roughly about 10 years to recoup from a loss 
of a of a of a person that they're married to because of psychological because of things they went into car loans house loans all this other stuff make sure they're taken care of and then once those two things are taken care of then you can make a decision with someone who's going to be your financial quarterback call it whatever you may an advisor a quarterback someone that you bounce ideas off of because once you take those two things off the table then you have to decide one or two things Am I just going to use my savings to invest, to try to leverage my money, to make more money for something down the road? Or am I going to take my extra money to invest in something to create cash flow? And that question has to be answered by only one person, and that's you. You have to figure out what type of person you are. Do you want to be someone who's active and their financial stability or do you want some or are you going to be that person who just wants it taken care of got to find that person that's going to help you out with that from there there's a million different steps either left or right of that decision and we talk about it we talk about it all the time so uh chris thank you so much for being on the podcast today uh really took me back you you talking about all our jujitsu days and, and i remember i remember all that history you were talking about and watching you go actually i only remember after you came back after you came back and you were training but it, it brought up so many great times Stackhouse, as always you are the rock man you are the foundation that makes all this happen i appreciate it so much guys anybody out there that's interested in starting a podcast and we really don't understand how to do it how to do the uh social media instagram facebook podcast all the things that go along with it Guess what? I don't either. I don't have a clue. But Stackhouse, he does. He knows how to get it out to all those different avenues. He knows how to get it off in a repetitive fashion. And uh, if you're interested in something like this, please look him up. Stackhouse is great. Chris, you're almost to 700 followers on Facebook. There you go, baby. That's that's where we're going. Uh, Chris, thank you so much. Enjoy your evening, Stackhouse. Enjoy your evening. And uh, later, guys. Later.